0: Hello, this is Bill Curley
1: and Holly Hudley,
0: and welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of
1: St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Okay, so Bill, here we are, episode four of In Between, and we've been joined by our friend Terry Thompson.
0: I love Terry Thompson. Hi, Terry. Hi, Bill. I love you, too. How long, have you, how long have you and I known each other? A long uh, time. In 1980,
2: I came to St. Paul's and um, met you uh, first during Wayne Day's right. tenure at St. Paul's. So it was about four years after I got to St. Paul's that Wayne Day came. And I survived that transition between John Fellows and Wayne Day. And you were friends with Wayne.
0: Uh, yeah, but I remember meeting you before then uh, somewhere um, I had a private practice office over on the Southwest freeway and met you there uh, under some circumstances. That's a long time ago. Anyway, Terry, I need
2: therapy even if I didn't come to you for that. I'm <laughs> sure I'm <Right. laughs>
0: uh, Yeah, that's probably that's probably uh, but uh, Terry, spent 30 years on the staff at St. Paul's as uh, minister of pastoral care, and I think he is a great person to have as our first guest because, my God, we need pastoral care. Our country does.
1: Yeah, so I'll say something about both of you. I've actually known Terry longer than I've known you, Bill, Um, Terry baptized me when I was 14.
0: Oh, really?
1: Uh Yeah, that was about the age I was when I got religion and decided I needed to join a church. (laughs) And my mother grew up in a Methodist church. So she took us to St. Paul's and Terry baptized me and my sister when we were around 14 and 15 years old. And then, of course, my sister dated Marty. (laughs) And our lives kind of entangled in a different way. But I feel like right now I'm sitting with two of my spiritual fathers oh in a way, my. because each of you have known me for so long and yeah. have been a really strong voice of wisdom in my life. Yeah, so. and
2: your your eyes are fourteen uh,
1: to me. <laughs> like,
2: they uh, are <laughs> for, for first of them.
1: Well, I still have a squinty
0: smile. How about that? So Terry, I I remember something that Jim Bankston said at a Breaking the Silence uh, event once. And I want to begin by quoting him and then just asking you to kind of key off of that, particularly uh, in light of the racial unrest that has been revealed, uh, systemic racism in our country. Jim said, Uh, Speaking about the LBTQ plus issue, and this was a number of years ago, he said the church has lost its ability to be prophetic. Now, the challenge will be to see if the church can stay relevant. Do you think that's applicable to what we're dealing with right now?
2: Absolutely. We we have to be relevant and prophetic in the face of... um,
0: all the things that are happening right now. How do we, how do, we do that? You got some ideas?
2: Um, yes, I, I think for, for me, I, I have such a need to be liked that um, I have always kind of edited what I have to say mm-hmm. um, for people to continue to like me. And I, I have found the biggest challenge throughout my ministry, and even now, is to set aside my need to be liked and say things that I think are well up in me that are pathetic, to, to let them out, to speak them, and not to not to worry about people being mad or lo- losing friends or losing relationship yeah. And uh, D'Angelo, in her book, uh, White... Fragility talks about our desire to be comfortable is so huge that address the racist uh, things that are are part of our, each of us.
1: Yeah, that's so. It's that sort of gave me chills when you said that. I don't know what your enneagram type is, but um, I sometimes relate that to my enneagram type. I sometimes relate that to what I think was an anxious attachment and childhood, um, this need to be affirmed and liked. and I too have to let go of be- gaining approval right. and rising above friendship in order to speak more truthfully about s- systems of power. And I would say that you know sometimes in interracial spaces that I've been in where we actually are having in- intentional dialogue, a lot of white folks come into that space saying, I want to make friends with people of color. And I think that many of the people of color that I have interacted with are like, that's not my job. My job is not to be your friend, nor is my job to teach you, but it is to create or imagine a world in which we all can just show up, whether we like each other or not and have freedom, have true personal freedom.
2: The first thing that came up for me was 1968, uh, in those those years, and Kent State occurred while I was in seminary. The, the students were murdered, and then the next day our seminary disbanded, and we all went to Columbus, Ohio, and marched in the biggest peace rally that's ever occurred there. Well, so, so- shortly after that, I'm preaching a sermon at the student appointment that I had, and I talk about the sermon was about forgiveness and repentance, and I suggested that the United States could be more reflective and consider uh, that we might we have perhaps made mistakes and that we repent and seek forgiveness. And uh, a man came out the, of the door to, toward me after the service and all the veins were showing in his neck and his fists were clenched. Mm-hmm. And I can see him and feel that rage um, as I speak. And I realized that I surely went in a hole after that, responding to his rage. And so what I think uh, throughout my life, that I'm sure that dynamic was there for me already, but I let that uh, silence my prophetic voice for a while. Mm. And uh, now I'm trying to let it come out in, in relationships. Um, more often, and try to not respond from that old fear of
1: anger stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's huge.
0: <laughs> Holly, I'd like I, I'd like to hear you say more about either one of you say more about this um, business about friendship because I think one of the biblical imperatives has to do with radical hospitality and. Um, it is is not being able to form relationships uh, based on this sense of empowerment that we've been talking about from uh, our our Irish friend Amiriku. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I I have been really delving into uh, in preparation for this coming Sunday. Um, how just by being present, by showing up, as you said, that we we can create a different kind of future.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I think both Buddhism and the teachings of Jesus say that if we could honestly look at each other and see each other as brother and sister, regardless of religion or race or country of origin or any of the other things that we allow to be barriers that we would begin to create a different world right so I, I, I want to say friendship matters
2: yes absolutely and and the piece that's missing so much so often for me with the emergency aid coalition is that we' are it's much a uh, it's necessary work it's wonderful work but it's it's band-aid work it is not relational work and it's top-down it's uh, we have and we give and and it isn't addressing so i was so frustrated with that back when we began the emergency aid coalition i started uh uh, with a jewish uh terrorist friend of mine we started a support group for people waiting in line for food and we invited them into the air conditioning and we had donuts and we bribed but it was voluntary to come in and every Tuesday, uh, we did that for a year. And what it did for me, it was, I saw it as learning for me. I needed to listen. I needed to hear the stories of people that were living on the streets. And, in, and there were disproportionate and a number of people of color that were in, on the street and in the group. And, and this is kind of bookends for me. Early in ministry, I had this experience where a man looked me in the eye and said, you are quit patting yourself on the back, you are doing exactly what you are called to be doing mm-hmm. as a, a Christian, as a church, This and, and nothing more. This is just the basic thing that you need to be doing. And he said, when I stand on a corner and sell magazines or whatever, and you don't want to buy a magazine, what I need you to do is just look in my eyes, look, see me see Mm -hmm. me as a person and and i would add then as as a brother on the deepest most profound level to see that in the through the eyes of that person see my brother Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and therefore his pain is my
1: pain yeah you know there's i think there is always a relational aspect to healing whether it's relationship to self relationship to another, relationship to society. But I think when I think about relationship and friendship, if I, I I think that it's a bit of an entangled circle. I think understanding, deep empathic understanding can come from relationship. But I also think that relationship is a byproduct of whether we're coming to a space with equity-minded, right? If we're coming to a space with, I'm here to give you something, I'm here to perform an act of charity, we're not being equity-minded. We're saying, I have something to give you. Or if I think the same is true for you, you have something to teach me or give me, then we're not, it's not equity-minded, right? So I, I think that relationship can grow out of the willingness to just show up It can also be begun by a relationship, that desire to show up or experience like you had with a man looking at you and saying, look me in the eye, see me, right? But I also think space plays a huge part in relationship. When I think of something like the EAC, where people who are being served, quote unquote, come to you, Right. They're in your space. So who is sort of the leader of the table there? And I think about people that I know there, there is a guy that I became friendly with who he's a steel worker. um, He's really (laughs) insanely intelligent and really sharp and really creative. He works with the architect that I sometimes work with doing fences and um, he helped me with a couple projects. So we became friendly and we kind of joked that he was my Mexican brother and I was his green guy sister. But the truth is he was in my space. I have never been to his space. And so there's something about that that can't be an equitable friendship. So I, I think kind of when we're willing to sort of share space, friendship can grow out of that. And relationship can be more genuine. But I think about who built the table and who is doing the inviting to the table. Or are we all choosing our position at the table and showing up because we believe in an equitable world and that regardless of whether I like you or not, I see you as deserving of the same privileges, rights, and shared empowerment as I have. So I don't have to like you to think you deserve being a human being being seen as a human being, you know what I'm saying? So I, I do think genuine friendship can grow out of those moments. I just think that if we go in thinking, I'm going to make friends here so that I can be an acceptable white person.
2: I'm questioning all of my uh, interracial uh, friendships
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, based on what you just said. And the, the uh, D'Angelo in, in the book, White Fragility, suggests if we have a relationship with a person of color, and if we have the relationship then sit down with them and say uh i'd like some feedback about ways that i have given you signals that you can't do who you are in my presence tell me uh what behaviors of mine get have helped have let you shut down and i I brought that up with the relationship i trusted the most uh and we had talked about a million other things before. I finally had the courage to ask that, and then mm-hmm. when I asked that, he shut down. He says, "I'm. I'll have to call you back later," and da and just change the subject. Oh yeah, he wrote back a week later saying uh, he apologized for terminating the conversation mm. and said uh, he was he was just overwhelmed with busy stuff, mm. denying that it was related to my question, and then he said started giving me positive feedback about behaviors being open and good for for the relationship. Uh, I'm I'm still not trusting that because um, I think maybe he still did shut down uh, when I asked
1: Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of a two-way reflection. So reflecting on ourselves, how have I um, shown up in ways that I knew I was seeking affirmation and acceptance. And, and if the relationship is trusting, so for example, clearly I have, well, not clearly, I guess, not everyone does. I do have that relationship with my husband where we can reflect back to each other. How did I make you feel in that moment? Um, but so it's that two-way reflection of being internal and external, seeing ourselves from someone else's point of view.
0: I wonder why what it is that gets in the way of people being able to affirm that everybody wants the same thing. Everybody wants to be treated with respect. everybody wants to um, not suffer and if, if I think Maybe I'm being naive about this, but I believe that if we could see each other through that lens, we would stop saying hateful things to each other or doing things that are, are not good. You, 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 we reduce, uh, I mean, we can see this in history, we can see it right now. So many people in power reduce people that they consider other to be less than them. And that's just such a problem.
1: Yeah, there, you know, that is the nature of interbeing, right? Is to see everything as connected and everything as equal participants in evolutionary time, as in evolutionary life, right? Our earliest ancestors, let's say, were bacteria. That bacteria isn't much a part of us as the human being sitting next to us. Those, that interdependence is from the smallest level to the largest level. Um, And I agree with you. You know, we do have this universal set of human needs, which was put forth by nonviolent communication experts like Marshall Rosenberg, uh, Mickey Kashtan. These are people that I learned from around this universal set of human needs. And I think one of the types of thinking that gets in our way is scarcity thinking. Uh, There's not enough for everyone. And if I... Mm -hmm. Give up something, I will have lost rather than gained mutual empowerment.
0: And that makes us rivals with each other. And rivals don't like each other. And you know, sometimes that gets played out in safe ways, like in football games and political parties. But when it becomes racial, then it's not not safe. Terry, I'm not familiar with the book White Fragility. Tell us about that.
2: Uh, it's a book that I was intru- introduced to it at First United Methodist Church in Austin. Uh, the pastor there, uh, Taylor Metter First, used this book for their Lenten uh, study this year. So they did 40 days of studying this book. Anyway, it's by Robin D'Angelo, and she teaches racial inclusivity Mm. to corporations and businesses and churches and all all over. And she's white and she sees her message as being teaching, uh, one of teaching white folks to be aware of their fragility. And so um, Mm -hmm. she says there, when you, I love her, some of her uh, quotes, she talks about white fragility and the rules of engagement. And she said, um, Thus, mm-hmm. the first rule and the cardinal rule of engagement is: do not give me feedback on my racism under any circumstances. That's right. the cardinal. And then the and if you must break the cardinal rule, then you must follow these other rules. And then she's got all these qualifications and things that can shut mm-hmm. down the conversation if you if black people do them wrongly, but if they say things the wrong way because we just shut down and then start blaming them. And the most present one right now for me, the most urgent one right now is our response to the violence that occurs on the streets, the looting that occurs on the streets. And what I'm seeing white people do with that, not that I'm justifying the violence or the looting, but what I see white people doing is then immediately dismissing the whole issue and saying this isn't something I need to address because the, the violence just gives me excuse to not think about it.
1: Well, we just, so I've listened to the audio book and I found it useful as well. Um, th- but the, you know, what we do is we justify our position by saying violence and looting is wrong. Right. And we focus on the flames rather than the spark, right? We focus on this, the fire, rather than what caused the fire.
2: Root causes, again.
1: Yeah.
2: The EAC, yeah. I think we should be doing as much investment in what uh, contributions toward eliminating root causes as the sandwiches we give, at least as much.
0: One of my friends said that uh, uh, we. you can change a sentence you can change the meaning of a sentence just by switching switching a few words you're in. So when the white person says, you know, the, uh, the, the killings of black people by police are really bad, but the looting has got to stop. And if you change that sentence to say, you know, the looting is really bad, but the killings have got to stop. That's right. Those are different sentences and they have a different impact. Um, right. I mean, sure, violence and mm-hmm. looting is wrong, but the top priority is right. shooting somebody in the back. An innocent, unarmed person is much worse.
1: Right. There's also this tendency in the in the media to go and vilify the victim. Okay. Right. So after the fact, um, and it's happening with George Floyd. Well, he had a history of this or that. So it's again utilizing past infractions to justify a current incident. And that's so common in our media because our media is driven mostly by white talking heads. And because it's so difficult for whiteness to look itself in the eye. So Terry, in a way, the story you told about the man looking you in the eye and saying, see me. I think we need to do that same thing with ourselves. We need to look at ourselves in the eye and say, what do I need to see? And what is making me defensive about, um, you know, this sort of thing being called to my attention? Why Why am I finding a need to rationalize the killing of an unarmed black man? And I think that's what our culture has taught us to do. So that's sort of one of the things we need to look at ourselves in the eye and see. How are we relating to this? Are we relating to this through eyes of equity, compassion, and inclusion? Or are we relating this through eyes of, don't tell me it's as bad as it really is. I don't want to hear.
0: Well, I think, too, that one of the things that blocks conversation is that it's just like in being in an intimate relationship with someone, when you see that you have been complicit in a difficulty in the relationship. Um, you're going to have to take some hits for that. And that doesn't feel comfortable. And I think that for white people to stand and listen to the legitimate grievances that black people have is really hard for people. You know, Terry, you mentioned that you have this need to be liked. And there are so many people who are afraid of anger uh, that they don't want to hear the hurts and grievances that black people have.
2: I think we are we are called into a season of discomfort.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We
2: need to stay there. We need to stop being comfortable, and uh, the pandemic is the perfect uh, playing ground for us to stay in this discomfort and disease, uh, right. and and until we can try to really put things together long enough for it to give us energy to do something different. Yeah, that's
1: a little bit how. Bill and I were talking about anger last week, right? Is to be to be motivated to 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 listen to the grief and and tap into our own grief about the way things have gone and become angry enough to want to create something different. And I I really feel like that's also I'm gonna mention this again, but you know that story I keep mentioning uh, that I owe credit to ta Coates for this metaphor of being in the cage, right? Yes. Yeah, where the realization that we, we are not outside of the cage. We've been in the cage together all of these hundreds of years. It's just that white society may just be waking up to the fact that we're in the cage.
0: Yeah, the, the, the prison guard is just as much in prison as the prisoner.
1: Right, and, and very different realities of that prison experience, but, you know, this is, I think, what Thich Han meant in his poem, Call Me By My True Name.
0: Yeah, I, I, uh, a colleague of mine in Austin um, got me to read the book uh, Tears We Cannot Stop by Michael Dyson, and uh, I think that was one of the most painful reading experiences I've had in a long, long time. Because there was so much in that book that I kind of knew at a head level to be true. But uh, as I will say, Sunday when we're talking about the teachings of Buddha and Jesus, all of this stuff in our heads has got to make this epic 18-inch journey down to our hearts mm-hmm. before it does right. any good at all. And um, right. that takes work. That takes effort. It takes a, a willingness. I love the way that you put it, Terry. It We're called to a season of discomfort, yeah. to be discomforted.
2: Yeah. So toward the end of my ministry, like just a few weeks before I retired, I, was, I got on the train, and I, had, I was returning to the church from the gym, and I had, I had my clerical collar on. I was returning from the gym, and I got in the seat knee-to-knee with an African-American man who smelled of the street and had a big bag on his lap with lots of his possessions. And every other seat in the train was full. So we were, our knees were touching. And I started looking, we looked at each other awkwardly. And I had a spontaneous nosebleed from being at the gym and the, whatever. And I didn't have anything to protect myself. So I, I held my nose. And the compassion from this man's eyes caught mine. And he went in his bag and pulled out a shirt and ripped it i mean it was just like the breaking of the bread and he handed me half of this old t-shirt for my need and and i took it from man and used it i mean I was kind of worried about where it had been and, and all this stuff but i used it and held Held my nose, and we just looked at each other for the rest of my ride until I got off at the next stop. Mm. And in him, I saw everything about my life. I saw Christ, I saw my ministry, I saw who I was, I saw everything through this vehicle of this this human being. And it's like a book into that first story I told about in the in the food mm. pantry in the support group. Uh, once again, through the mm-hmm. eyes, and see that that's given me energy to pro- propel all the way through retirement about um, our connectivity, our interconnection with every human being. And if that doesn't inform our racism, that has to be the the healing energy yeah. that mm-hmm. drives the future toward the future
1: so that's what i think of when i think of relationality right we have to see ourselves in relationship to everyone and everything regardless of friendship and i
2: need to receive learn to receive
1: right right and he was he was christ in that moment literally giving you the shirt off his back.
2: And the, the breaking the, yeah. the breaking of the
1: yeah. Incredible.
2: yeah
1: yeah this is where i think Um, My greatest lead into Buddhism is Thich Nhat Hanh, more of a contemporary figure. Um, But this is where I think that Buddhism and Christianity really, really are threads of the same way, if you will, which is we must see ourselves in the eyes of the other in order to see God. And we must see the other in ourselves in order to experience god in order to experience love yeah
0: and in order to do that we have to show up
1: we have to show up you know i mean i i think so much i i do think some of what really stops white folks from joining the table is that fear of not being liked or also uh, like our our authority is being called into question we're learning we're not so right about our world even though we've been taught that we Bear, we are the standard bearers for our world and discomfort is is really we're risk averse right we we have been it's been okay for us to be risk averse we can go well i'm going to leave this table they didn't like me i've actually literally heard people say that they didn't like me that temptation is great but i think if we stay at the table and settle into our discomfort that's where transformation can happen
0: So one of the ironies involved in all of this unveiling is that um, up until now for a a number of years, since Lyndon Johnson introduced the so-called great society programs, which uh, conservative people are really intent on wanting to cut back on and eliminate safety nets for so many people. One of the things that's been said about people who are in need, people who are discriminated against, is that, oh, well, they feel entitled. We shouldn't, they, you know, they shouldn't feel entitled. No statement of entitlement is bigger than that. Right, right. I am want
1: what I want.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm entitled to tell you that you can't have what you need.
1: Which is scarcity thinking. Right. right. Yeah. So I have one final question. And um, Terry, if your audio is working, I'd love to hear what you say. Ilya Delio is someone Bill and I both love. We joke that we each have a crush on her. She's been writing about the need for a God revolution and a kind of call to the church for a complete revolution. Um, What do you guys think that the church can look like in order to create what I would say, what Teilhard de Chardin says is love at the heart of the cosmos, right? How is it a combination of of the church's responsibility or is it? And then where does personal responsibility? So Jim Finley, Diarmuid Omiraku, many others talk about this need for personal responsibility. So what are the role do you think of those two in evolving consciousness or spirituality well i personally
0: think that one of the things that we are going to have to ask ourselves as a church i'm speaking now about saint paul's but i think this is true for any white male run folk religion um, Thing, no matter how high church and sophisticated it is, we're going to have to take seriously what it means that we might need to stop doing some things, mm-hmm. and uh, we stop things in order to create a space for different kind of communities to come into existence. Communities that are communities of empowerment, as Amuruku talks about, that um, are communities that um, are intentionally designed. Um, not to absorb other people, not to ask other people to come join us, but our collaborative efforts on the part of, in this case, white and black people to create something that we can all be part of. Mm -hmm. And that's scary for people to think about because it might mean stopping things that we hold very dear.
2: Yeah, I I think the older I get, the less important um, a lot of the structures of the church Are And I think that the three-tiered universe uh, represented in our worship experiences uh, needs to be softened uh, through the spoken word and uh, through stories. And so I think not just this pastor's message from the sermon, but from uh, stories from people as a part of our worship experience where we hear a variety of voices, uh, you know, I'm, we're always kind of shocked when going through the service, and then we we pull out the Apostles' Creed, and there are a million other creeds that we could use, but we keep using that one over and over and over again. It just keeps stating this, God's out there, and we're down here, and, uh, and even though I don't know people at St. Paul's that believe that or think that much, we still say it because it's part of the tradition, and I think... Uh, right now, we we got that quadrilateral. We need to be emphasizing uh, experience much more than tradition. And mm-hmm. I think the tradition will be there and will stay there and will be there. But I think Bill's right. We've got to do things differently. We've got to look at uh, and and this is the perfect time to try that during the mm-hmm. pandemic when when we're we don't we're not there and we can try some things. Um,
1: yeah, that's balancing that with this sort of longing that folks have for. Everything else is changing around I me. Mean, can't we just keep yes. the church the same? Yes, yes, yes. And Bill has said to sort of the steering committee group also, like, come with us in in this sort of creative moment too. And um, yeah, I I think we're learning the church is not a place. That's right. You know. Yeah, the, it's not, it, it, where does church occur? Where does fellowship occur? It occurs in everyday moments. Yeah, I, Meister Eckhart saying, I only need watch a caterpillar and never write another sermon in order to understand God. We were just outside watching five monarchs chow down on the milkweed. And it's just, that is so phenomenal to watch. And that is an act of holiness right there, watching a creature be entirely itself Mm. and being in that moment with it. So I think for me as a human, I'm leaning into this question of what does it mean to be entirely ourselves, not bound by structures?
0: You know, Terry, I could not agree with you more. I have been um, repeating to the point that I think people might be getting irritated or bored with it, but Uh, We have reached the end of cosmological dualism. God is not out there. We've got to stop thinking that way. And we've also got to stop emphasizing the individual. Uh, We have to focus more on the community and being part of the community.
2: Absolutely.
0: I mean, and this is what evolutionary cosmology has to teach us. Um, you know, Micah Morwood says, even when you pray, what are you asking me to imagine when you address God out there as coming in, and, right, and helping us? So.
2: And so, prayer, prayer for me is is often uh, when I'm painting, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's so. What's wonderful about that is it's just one example, but it's just so different than speaking to a, a person in a prayer Mm -hmm. you know when i'm become aware in the process of painting that i have let go on some deep level and there is something in as you would say in the universe coming through me Mm -hmm. and i step back and i see this on this canvas that there's something that happened there that didn't just come from me Mm -hmm. and it's um so that that is more profoundly prayer right now for me than when I say words. Yeah. I, my words are usually edited and, uh, you know, appro- to be appropriate. Yeah. But uh, the painting experience is much more of a letting go and going with flow.
1: Yes. And I'll be,
2: then we'll say, where were you? And, I, you know, I'd be hours that I didn't even know I was painting. Mm-hmm. I didn't, wasn't aware of time. So that prayer is more that for
1: me now mm-hmm. than uh, saying words. That's I relate to that entirely. As you know, I've been an artist for a very long time, also. But that, um, when I think about who do I imagine, I don't have verbal prayers very often, but I I imagine, let's say, the face of my children, right? That that Absolutely. if I can bring God, the God experience, so to speak, right there in front of me, that mm. helps me ground to the God in reality or to the spirit in reality rather than this idea that I was taught about God out there.
2: Yeah. But, and the same thing when I was doing my kids laundry, you know, it it was a prayer to... Fold and clean each piece of their clothing. I, I kind of held on to laundry uh, jealously because that was my prayer time for each person. Smelling, as I was,
1: smelling Marty's socks.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. When they, after they were
0: clean. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Terry, for spending time with us. So good to see you yeah. and hear you.
2: Thank you both. Yeah. Oh, we miss miss you. Miss yeah. miss hugging.
0: Yeah, Miss Hugs.
1: Yeah, agreed.
2: And, and thank you, too, for uh, doing this, for helping us think through uh, our feelings in this time and to help reframe uh, how we might move forward toward justice. I thank you from the Linda, and I thank you so much for your work.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, until next time, this is another edition of In Between and we hope to see you Sunday in ordinary life
1: thanks y'all love you both Thank you. bye bye this episode of in between was recorded on June 17, 2020 thanks for joining us you can find us on apple podcasts or wherever you download podcasts from, or on our website at ordinarylife.org.